0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives to talk about the urgent issues in our world today. Uh, one of the headlines that's been catching everybody's eyes these days is the coronavirus outbreak in China. And we here at Policy Punchline feel like we, we should really address the issue, uh, not just from a policy standpoint, but also from a technical perspective to really understand the disease. Uh, and as someone from China, I feel particularly saddened by the news uh, and and. And what has happened? So uh, I really want to do an episode on this on, on, on this virus. And today with me in the studio is uh, Professor Jess Metcalf, who is an assistant professor in ecology, evolution, public affairs at Princeton University. Uh, she's the head of the Metcalf Lab at Princeton, and she research. Uh, her research uh, is in an intersection of demography. Um, healthcare and virology. So she's done a wide variety of things uh, from studying plants and trees and aging to diseases, uh, all from very fascinating interdisciplinary perspectives. Uh, So thanks so much for being here with me today, Professor Metcalf.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, And also with me is uh, a senior on our Policy Punchline team. Her name is Alex Wilson. Uh, She uh, minors in global health programs, so is very... uh, is an expert uh, on those matters and has helped me a lot in terms of writing questions and making sure that I'm prepared for s- this interview. Thanks so much for joining me today, Alex.
2: Yeah, thank you, Tiger.
0: Uh, yeah, so Professor Metcalf, why don't we just uh, start uh, this free-flowing conversation by maybe talking a little bit about you and your research, um, You are epidemi- epidemiologist. I, I, I struggle to pronounce that word, by the way. So uh, what are some of the big questions that you and your lab are asking about humans, diseases, and the environment Uh, Maybe we can start from there.
1: Um, Two of the most exciting threads we've focused on recently have been on vaccine policy and mapping vaccination coverage and thinking about the consequences for the burden of infectious diseases. So with a particular focus on measles and on rubella. We've also been doing a lot recently on climate drivers of infectious disease. And this is with great colleagues from geosciences and building on Princeton's unique strengths and links to the Global Fluid Dynamics Lab. So we've been looking, for example, at how um, climate drivers shape the dynamics of respiratory syncytial virus, which is a nasty infection that has high morbidity and mortality in very young children, and thinking about how changing climates will affect the burden of this infection.
0: Got you. Um, And in what geographic regions do you typically focus your work? Um, Are there specific areas that... that
1: Um, So we're motivated, you know, partly by the questions and by the data that is available. So very generally, if there is beautiful data anywhere in the world, we will work that applies to a relevant question, we will work with it. Partly because I grew up partly in Madagascar, I have a focus in my lab on Madagascar. And so we've been doing work ranging from thinking about rabies and vaccination against rabies, um, through to uh, infections of Poultry, so poultry pathogens, and how they spread across the country in the context of food security, all within Madagascar, which has these really nice features of being an island. So in a way, it's kind of a contained uh, situation and also having some really fantastic collaborators uh, working there.
0: Uh, got you. Uh, so you mentioned vaccine policies. Uh, you, you mentioned measles. Uh, I, I'm just curious to hear a little bit more about uh, how you actually the process of you conducting those research. Uh, where do you usually sort of start? Uh, how do you bring in the policy angle when analyzing things from a technical perspective?
1: So one of the interesting questions that emerges in infectious diseases is considering aspects of the dynamics. So I think the added value of the things we do are mapping uh, where vaccination coverage is or isn't adequate, but thinking about this adequacy in the context of the age profile of cases, what the likely burden is. Um, The challenge really, of course, is finding ways of providing useful guidance. In a way, if you know where vaccination coverage is low, there's very little that we do in in that scenario. One of the pieces of work we've done that um, I think builds more on the kind of extra insights you might get from building a dynamical model of these processes is in thinking about uh, the age profile of vaccination coverage. So, for example, children should be um, able to, um, children should be eligible for vaccination between nine and 12 months of age. In reality, uh, the way that it works in many settings as they might be getting it quite a lot later. And the concern there is that it might be too late so that they've already been infected with measles. However, you're also, by not providing that opportunity for children who'd missed it on the first round, you're creating this vulnerable population. So there's a trade-off there that you can frame in models and show that the benefit of just widening that age range of eligibility could be really considerable. And the value of that policy recommendation is that it's extremely cheap to implement, right? It doesn't require deploying 10,000 more vaccination teams. You just need to release the upper age of eligibility in, in healthcare centers uh, in various settings.
0: That, that that totally makes sense. I think that there's a longer conversation that um, needs to be had maybe later in the interview today about kind of the interaction between science and policy. Because I think what we witness is in, in uh, whether it's vaccination uh, or uh, in the coronavirus cases is that the scientists could, you know, make a case about it. But then when the government actually implements certain policy or, or the implementation process might actually uh, end up disappointing people or lead to more casualty than what than, well, we should. So, so I th- yeah, so I think that part could, could be something we, we talk about later. Um, I also wanted to ask you, what about from the virology sort of perspective?
1: So measles and rubella are viruses. So that, yeah. that's yeah. where the, the core connection comes in. Um, they're also, they're extremely uh easy viruses to work with in a way because they have a relatively simple, what we'd call a um, life history from a biology perspective. The way they work is that they are directly transmissible. So the only way that you would get measles is if you were susceptible to measles and somebody sneezed at you who had measles. They're completely immunizing. So once you've had them, you will never have them again. Um, And they have exactly one host, which is us. So you don't have to worry about infections in bats or other species. So they're The, uh, you know, viruses, I think about 300 virus species have been known to infect humans and they have varyingly complicated biologies. This is perhaps the simplest biology you can target, which is convenient because it is also a biology, you know, the case fatality rate for measles is, uh, can be extraordinarily high. It can be as high as 20% in settings where people are suffering from other things like malnutrition. So that measles vaccination has been referred to as a best buy in public health because the vaccine is cheap. It's effective, it's safe, and it gives you lifelong protection.
2: So you mentioned that these viruses are, you said, completely immunizing. So once you have them, you're not going to get them again um, if you survive that virus, right? Um, Can you give an example of a virus that isn't completely immunizing? Maybe you could be infected more than once.
1: um, So that's a great question. I think of what we know of existing coronaviruses, they mostly... Do not generate uh, long-lasting immunity. Again, I think that the you know we're still piecing together the evidence there. And I should add, there's many ways of being completely immunizing. Right, you could be completely protected for the rest of your life from disease, so from showing the negative sides of infection on your health. But you might still be getting infected, which would mean that you're still at a risk for the population in terms of you could transmit to other individuals it's just that you wouldn't be suffering the consequences so it's thought that something like that acts for example for rotavirus which is a diarrheal infection that again is is a very high source of morbidity and mortality in children
0: uh, why don't we uh, quickly pivot to coronavirus i think since since we want to talk about that episode maybe we can talk a little bit more about that and later uh, a little bit more about your research so uh, just to give give our listeners a quick background about coronavirus. I mean, uh, from my uh, shallow research, it seems that it's kind of a respiratory um, illness um, that is c- can be spread between humans, uh, very easily transmittable. Uh, and the outbreak sort of t- took place later f- December in, in China. And right now, uh, the numbers are quite shocking. So the, the live update of the stats uh, until today, so we're um, taping this on February the 14th, Happy Valentine's Day, by the way. So we're we're taping it on on February 14th, and China literally just reported 5,000 new cases in the past 24 hours. Uh, 1,700 medical workers have contracted the, the virus, and six of them have died in China. Currently around 50... 5,000 patients uh, in China alone, uh, f- around 1,400 are, are dead already. So, and there's another 170,000 people who are sort of being closely observed. So it's, it's just extremely shocking statistic when it comes to scale um, and the speed of, of, of this virus. So. Uh, Professor was from from your perspective, uh, when you first heard about this, what was your reaction? Did you did you feel like it's a it's a very controllable thing? It was something completely out of out of scale. That that is not something we've seen before. Like uh, from the technical perspective, how how did you see this virus?
1: I think one of the first things to say is that uh, what we've learned over the last decade in global health is to expect the unexpected. Um, There's been emergent pathogens, you know, SARS emerged in 2005, there was uh, the 2009 influenza pandemic, which was kind of where many eyes were in terms of concern about pandemics because of the 1918 influenza pandemic, which had such an extraordinarily high fatality rate. Then there was Ebola, which again, just completely surprised us because we did not expect that to become the scale of a problem it did based on what we knew about its biology and its transmission. And then there was Zika, which we did not know to be pathogenic. It was thought to be just another virus that had, you know, very maybe fever, chills. I forget the exact range of symptoms, but nobody expected it to come with the burden it did. So um, was I completely shocked? No, in a way. And since SARS in 2005, um, I think coronaviruses have been a source of a special concern, Uh in part because we don't have a vaccine to date and in part because we don't have very good antivirals. Um, Would I have been able to predict it was a coronavirus? I don't think I could do that either. So the things that will create an emergent pathogen is this uniquely complicated recipe involving the biology of the pathogen, patterns of contact between humans and the potential zoonotic source of that pathogen, so changes in land use or changes in, you know, um, individuals arriving in new locations, changes in global connectivity, all these pieces have to come together to create the circumstances where a pathogen might emerge. So was it surprising? In a way, not. Was it predictable? That specific pathogen, it would have been hard, I think.
0: Osona, got you.
2: That's really, really interesting. You actually managed to predict completely our our next question, um, which was about the drivers of viral emergence. So then I know that you also mentioned outbreaks like Zika and outbreaks like Ebola, which were also emerging infections within the past decade. Um, In a situation like that, where you have this outbreak emerging in real time, nobody knows really what's happening, um, and people are there there are real-world health consequences. Um, what are some of the first steps taken by researchers when evaluating these infections? And when a newspaper article says that scientists are trying to understand the infection, what does that actually mean? What are they looking for?
1: So I think one of the first things people do is go out and try and sequence the virus or identify what the etiological agent is. Um, and then the concern for something like um, the coronavirus is... Is there human-to-human transmission? Because, you know, in the early days of this outbreak, the people affected were mostly people who had been in contact with this one particular market. I think that's um, that seems to be um, the case, of the course. wildlife
0: kind of... Exactly. Uh, so animals. wildlife exposure. Exactly.
1: Um, so you go out, you sequence the virus, because that gives you a handle on what its biology might be. It doesn't pin it down necessarily entirely, but it might give you a sense of, of you know, how it fits in, to what we know of other viral pathogens, if it is a virus, it might not be a virus, of course. Um, then you need to work really hard to sa- standardize your understanding of the symptoms, to work up diagnostics, to figure out, you know, to pin down which live bird market it was to sort of do contact tracing on, uh, on the individuals who appear to be showing these symptoms. Um, if, if, if it's a very new, if it's just a uniquely new thing, then you probably have to start working with Cox postulates and going straight, you know, right back to the origins of biology. Um, and, and then once it starts, once you start seeing evidence of human to human transmission, then you can start worrying about what the uh, trajectory is likely to be.
0: Totally makes sense. Uh, so so why coronavirus? So you, you mentioned how uh, there's this contact with the wild animal market, and I think it's quite uh, well understood at this point that the virus was, was very much sort of coming from wildlife animals and because... Chinese people have the tendency to buy them or eat them or cook them, whatever, uh, that ended up b- b- being uh, sort of contracted with this disease. So, so is that how the virus actually, it's, it seems to me that the, the process spreading from from animals to human uh, would actually require various intermediaries and, and it, would, it would be more complex uh, from a virology perspective than, than just you touch the animal and you get it, right?
1: Probably. Again, this isn't exactly my area, so um, I'm not entirely sure how that will have played out. And again, in terms of, you know, you started with why coronavirus. I think, again, that'll depend on the biology of every particular pathogen and how this plays out. So avian influenza is another one that we worry about a lot. And that is not so much about... um, uh, So live bird markets probably play a role. We worry about industrial farming practices and whether they create, you know, little petri dishes where you allow these things to evolve, how they spill over to humans... They probably, you know, they probably need just the right kind of receptor or something. So there'll be some sort of adaptive process, potentially. But again, it's going to be so dependent on the specifics of that virus.
0: Got you. Uh, you mentioned SARS, and SARS happened, you know, in, in 2003, 2005. And that was something very much similar sort of in the family of this coronavirus. So uh, why didn't we kind of develop a vaccine or we're, 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 we're find a cure we're kind of understanding a better way you know almost twenty years after after that tragedy
1: so I think you touch on a really really interesting area which is market failures around vaccine development um right because there is actually uh, it's it's relatively hard to finance my understanding is the development of vaccines because The rewards are relatively slim, you know, especially if it's something for an emergent pathogen that's relatively rare, that's unpredictable. Um, Many uh, leaders in global health are thinking very actively about this problem and have been thinking actively about this problem, which is in part why I think we have got such an accelerated development of a coronavirus vaccine in the mix now. I think there is also just a minimal time frame. You know, you have to be able to test it. There's 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 an upper bound on how long it's gonna take that is sort of unmodifiable. It was extraordinary how fast we got an Ebola vaccine out. And another really interesting thing about these, just to go on a slightly different route, is how hard it is to test them, right? Because once, by the time we had the Ebola virus vaccine together, or you know, like a Zika virus vaccine, you don't have much of the infection around anymore. So you have to be able to develop a test design that allows you to do that and do it in an ethical way when there are very, very few cases, mm-hmm. right? Oh, so actually-
0: Do you have kind of a prediction regarding how quickly this vaccine could come out? Or, or, or do you have a nice sense of idea? When, when, if, if someone says, one of my friends basically came up to me and he was like, don't worry, we sequenced the, the virus and we're gonna, we're gonna solve this. This is a, this is a scientific problem, like we'll, we'll cure it. Uh, how would you respond to this kind of argument?
1: Um, so knowing what the virus is is one thing, but touching on everything to do with human immunology is a completely different thing, right And the trouble with vaccines is what you're trying to do is show your immune system something that tells it to respond to the pathogen and vaccines are just such an enormous global good because they if we had one for coronavirus. When we had one for the Ebola virus, you can protect healthcare workers, which is game changing in these sorts of situations, quite apart from the fact that, you know, it is this tremendous social good where by protecting yourself, but you're protecting others indirectly. Vaccines are just magical. <laughs> the trouble is that to develop them, many of them were developed, you know, at a time where you didn't, there, there isn't really a. I mean I think we're walking towards a more principled way of developing vaccines but it's very hard to do trial and error with this sort of thing where you're talking about a very problematic pathogen you know you're going to start with animal models you're going to build up it's a very it's a the uh one of the fascinating pieces of it is that your immune system is probably the most dangerous part of the equation it's thought that in the 1918 influenza pandemic the thing that was killing people was not the flu virus per se it was the, what's called cytokine storms that came around it. So people's immune systems react, were reacting so hard to the pathogen that they ended up dying. So because your vaccines are explicitly alerting your immune system, it is a very difficult
0: line to walk. So just just because your immune system is alerted does not mean it will... It will help you survive the disease later on. You're, it, that,
1: that's, exa- that's true too. So one, you could alert your immune system, but it could not remember because it needs to remember and it could not remember in the right way. Or two, you could alert your immune system in ways that are extremely, you know, you can have vaccine adverse events. For, well, I mean, for the vaccines that we have on the market, that's extraordinarily rare. But for, under the process of vaccine development, it's something that you have to navigate around and you have to be able to address.
0: That, that, that totally makes sense. So,
1: so vaccine trial design, I should say one more thing, is you know one of the like interesting statistical uh, and design challenges that people have really made enormous progress on recently as well in the wake of the Ebola outbreak.
0: Because but. by, by uh, vaccine trials, you mean this sort of long process, as you said, build up from testing on, on animals and then gradually moving on to humans. And even if you have successfully kind of devise this, quote unquote, vaccine, it might not actually, you know, work the magic as we kind of hoped it will be.
1: It it might not work the magic and you might be in a setting where the uh, infection is so rare that you can't Mm. gather together the evidence that it's actually doing anything, right? Yeah. So that was one of the challenges in the Zika.
2: So hypothetically say that estimates, like short end estimates are correct and we get this vaccine within one year, right? Do you foresee any issues with production and distribution of the vaccine? I mean, this is currently a fairly contained epidemic within one area of the world with some sporadic cases due to air travel. Um, is that something that is feasible to sort of disseminate to that population? Or do you foresee issues with that?
1: I can imagine there being issues. But, I, you know, again, it's not the questions of uh, vaccine production and supply chains are not one where I have particular expertise. I do think that the, um, you know, one of the big concerns about this virus, in terms of how public health must be ready to meet it is kind of surge capacity, right? If health centres are completely overwhelmed by billions of people turning up, and all the healthcare workers are going down, then you have a real problem. So having a vaccine that you could at least get out to all the healthcare workers um, could be really uh, important.
2: Yeah. So we've talked about vaccines. I believe you mentioned a little bit earlier in our conversation, um, antiviral treatments. So I was wondering if you know of any medical treatments currently being used to treat coronavirus patients who have already been infected. um, And what is sort of the difference between an antiviral medication and a vaccine that we've been talking about? The difference
1: is, vaccines prevent infection whereas antivirals is what you bring in when someone is infected so it, it's going to cure but it's not going to prevent spread yeah. or it, it might have a, it could potentially you know help a little bit but it might not have the huge impact that vaccines might
0: if someone right now comes to you and asks you to do the, the a rough prediction of how this thing will kind of unfold in the next couple of months uh, or year what are some of the big sort of stages that you foresee? Uh, like, for example, maybe you'll say in half a year it is possible that we have an antiviral treatment or maybe in a year it is possible that we have an, a vaccine. But, but those would be the realistic timeline. What, what would be a realistic timeline, you, you think, for, for this thing to, to be solved? Uh,
1: so I don't have much of a handle on the treatment side or the vaccine development side. That's not so much what I work on. Sure. I can. T- uh, so in terms of understanding the virus and understanding spread and understanding risk. Yes. There's a certain number of pieces that you need to know, which is much more in my sort of end of the world. Uh, So one of the, um, there's a number of key quantities you'd like to know. One of them is this value that epidemiologists refer to as R0 or R0. So this is the number of new infections per infectious individual in a completely susceptible population, right? And so for um, coronavirus right now, that number is estimated to be between two and three. And we also think that the time, the kind of generation time of this infection, so the, the time interval separating me having symptoms from someone I'm infecting having symptoms, is about a week. So by knowing that r naught equals two, and the infectious intervals, the um, generation time is about a week, you can predict that the outbreak should double pretty much every week, right? That's how that works. Um, The issue is, this is a prediction, this is a, this prediction will work in the early phases of the outbreak, is extremely contingent on context, so once people start becoming immune to the infection, if they do become immune to the infection, then there is, not everyone is susceptible, so the um, transmission will tend to fall off. Um, And it's also, it's an average, so, if one individual infects on average two other individuals, if that's what the kind of the trajectory of cases suggests to us, it could also be the case that many individuals are infecting zero individuals and a few individuals are infecting very many individuals. And this was notoriously uh, characteristic of SARS. SARS. The the
0: super host, however you call it, right?
1: So I think it's very important. The words we use in this context are very important. And there is a general consensus that the word super-spreader yeah. is not a helpful word, so we refer generally to superspreading events. So, because "superspreader," you know, it essentially sounds a lot like blaming the victims of these exactly. infections. Exactly. Um, so, there were many superspreading events associated with SARS, and they were often associated with healthcare settings. And the thing about understanding that particular component is that if you know what sorts of features are aligned with superspreading events, you might be able to better control the spread of the outbreak. I should say, if R0 is 2 and there's not much variation around it, then we can project the early phases of the outbreak. So there's doubling every week. If you're in a more erratic context where there's more variability, the outbreak becomes much less predictable. So it can be much more, um, much more stochastic, so harder to, to sort of get a handle on. Could one say, so how far does that take us? Because you were asking me to predict the longer term. It doesn't necessarily take us that far, right? It'll predict this early part of the, of the curve, but then everything else will kick in, like if individuals are being immunized by infection, that'll sort of reduce the substrate that the infection has to spread upon. If human behavior is changing, so this is something that happened very strikingly during the Ebola outbreak, then we also expect transmission to fall. It's all happening in the context of, you know, all of the complexity of our social lives as well. So, so it's, it's extraordinarily hard to predict how those things will fall out. I said that we need to know R naught. The other thing we really need to know, of course, is the uh, is how bad this infection is for our health, right? Because it wouldn't matter. You could have an R naught of fifty if this infection was extremely mild and asymptomatic. No one would care, because it'd just spread all around the world, and you know, so what? So it doesn't. It's the other piece that you really need to know in order to understand the context of this pathogen, is what the uh, case fatality rate is, or what the infection fatality rate is. And here we have a real problem uh, that I teach extensively, which is that particularly in the early phases of an outbreak, the numbers are so uncertain. And the numbers are so uncertain in part because the people who are turning up at hospitals and therefore are entering your databases are by definition people who have worse cases, right? It's people whose health is most affected. So your denominator might be really a very small part of the size of the population that is affected. So you might end up estimating case fatality rates that are really rather too high. And the other piece is, of course, that the numerator could also be slightly wrong. This is a rapidly evolving situation, and individuals that you're counting in the numerator might die further down the road. So there's uncertainty in both those parts, but it is a really important uh, sort of those, those two pieces of information are extremely important in trying to anticipate how much we should worry about these sorts of infections.
0: Uh, ju- just to clarify a little bit, so, so you're saying uh, when we calculate this, this ratio per se, the, the denominator would be uh, those who we kind of consider as having worsening conditions or, or...
1: It's those that we have data on, right? So, so it's, it's not so much a choice, it is very much just what we see. So if half of Princeton is wandering around with coronavirus, which I don't think is the case, but if they're asymptomatic, then they're not going into our denominator. Even if two people turn up at McCosh with really bad symptoms and one of them dies, then we're going to end up with a case fatality rate of half.
0: So, so Right. And I think that's the challenge for this particular virus, is that the symptom might not exhibit itself for 14 days or longer, right? Or
1: so there's the time aspect, but also the severity aspect. Yes, right? There's yes, a yes, spectrum yes. of severity. It seems um, that there is a spectrum of severity. There's a really wonderful paper um, written by uh, this chap called Christoph Fraser and colleagues, which asks what makes a emergent pathogen containable. And one of the things that he brings up is how much asymptomatic transmission is there, right? Because if people are wandering around with no signs of the infection, then it's very hard to understand how the disease is spreading around the landscape, how the infection is spreading around the landscape, but also how long before symptoms appear individuals are transmitting the infection. So if you can wander around, if I could wander around for a week, giving a bunch of people coronavirus before I turned up in the hospital, then uh, we're in a much um, harder place to contain the infection than if the moment I get the infection, I start showing symptoms. So I end up, you know, going to hospital or at least being detectable by the health data systems. The um, SARS seem to have a a certain amount more... It's, It's hard to say exactly, right, in retrospect, but it seems that for SARS... Uh, transmission did not precede symptoms very much. And that might be, in part, what allowed us to contain it so effectively.
2: So just to be clear, so we can test if somebody has coronavirus, is that correct? So there's some sort of a test that you can take that'll show up sort of positive or negative, whether you have this infection. Do you know anything about the reliability of a test like that and how that could help contribute to Making this data potentially more accurate, or is that something where there are just too many people and there's not enough capacity to run this on everybody? So,
1: uh, so that's a great point. Um, the I think the CDC has approved a test quite recently, but we should check that statement, um, and has implemented it. Has introduced it into the influenza surveillance in the United States right now. I believe that's true. Um, So suddenly you have this enormous, potentially powerful window onto what's actually going on. I think it is, you raise a really excellent point, like having such a test, having it easily deployable, having it available in all the hospitals is just gonna be incredibly important. Um, And there was, I know from a friend who's a doctor, there was a certain slowness in that. I mean, it seems like an obvious win, especially if you're trying to quarantine people. If you can figure out who does and doesn't have the infection, then it becomes a sort of very different uh, space. Because if you only have, say, 100 beds in your hospital to quarantine people, and you have to keep them there until you're sure they don't have the infection, you're going to be overwhelmed unbelievably quickly. So an effective diagnostic test is really, really important. And getting ahead of that as fast as possible is really, really important. Um, And I think there is some discussion about the degree to which Allowing because there is a, a certain number of standardized things you can do to detect the presence of a virus, right? It's basically PCR. Um, but the degree to which uh, the that is sort of regulated at the national level in the United States, which is makes it much more slow moving, versus allowing hospitals to kind of produce their own, is an, an interesting policy question in itself. Um, to your point, absolutely. You know, having and not having this sort of infection is kind of probably going to be pretty zero one. Either I'm infected or I'm not. But the spectrum, so that's the infection, the spectrum of symptoms, which we refer to as the disease, could be this whole range. And this is the reason that it's so hard to contain the spread, right? The only way you're going to get coronavirus is if you come in contact with someone who has coronavirus, but you might not be able to tell, and they might not know because it's asymptomatic. So... uh, finding out who has it and who doesn't, developing diagnostic test capacity is extraordinarily important. Implementing it into the systems of surveillance we have is a kind of natural no-brainer. Even if you did that, I don't think you're going to go out and test everyone in you know, China. I like guess it's, it's just going to be extraordinarily hard to do that. Although I have to say China's building hospitals in like four minutes, so maybe maybe they can do it. But it would be extraordinarily hard to figure out what the kind of landscape of infection was from that. And it, it, it's like very likely you'd be too slow, right? Because if I have coronavirus, I'm going to be infectious. I, you know, I'm, it's, it's going to be like a week or two. You're going to have to catch me in a week or two window. And by then, you know, you might be trying, trying to move slowly through testing a population. The window might be gone. Uh,
0: yeah, I, th- I think the one question that, I've, uh, that has been lingering in my mind is that I don't know why uh, because you mentioned how China's uh, measure for for containing the virus has been very effective in in the sense that the scientists really got behind it and the government, you know shut down the city and everything. Uh, but but the cases are still rising at such a such a high rate. Does it mean that even though we uh, try our best to contain it in some way, the virus might still, keep going on for a long, long time. Uh, Like, how do you kind of see this trend going? I would love to hear your thoughts. It doesn't have to be about coronavirus per se, but just from a sort of virology perspective.
1: So I think the first thing to say is that, I mean, these are incredibly chaotic and traumatic circumstances in which you're designing the first um, efforts in which to contain the virus or attempt to contain the virus. Um, And uh, you've got to imagine that no one really knows what's going on. I mean, and you've also got to imagine that you're referred to the case numbers and the case numbers fluctuating. I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried to curate any database. So imagine this happening at the national scale where different doctors are producing different things in this chaos where they're also being overwhelmed by patients and perhaps the symptoms associated with the infection are still under flux. You haven't quite decided what they are. So the uh, they, recently there was a change in the case definition that causes large jumps in numbers and people like, oh, conspiracy or whatever. You know, it, these things probably, ha- it's extraordinarily hard to imagine in all this chaos, in the context where, you know, your first concern is surely to help people who are affected and try and reduce transmission. Getting the right numbers is important, but it's going to be third on that list. Um, in terms of do I think uh, it'll keep on going? I think really in those early days, we it was impossible to say whether the steps taken uh, w- would have been effective in containing the virus or not. I mean, in hindsight, of course, you can see lots of things you might do differently, but you know that that's hindsight. That's always the case. Um, the um, f- for many in- for infections for which we have no clear vaccine or no clear way to prevent transmission. So airborne infections, or rather um, direct transmission infections, with a relatively high NODS. It's it seems to me really likely that escape will be general there is this is my personal sort of intuition so it's based on the fact that there is asymptomatic transmission the fact that R naught is 2 i would be very surprised if this didn't go global but it might not i mean i might be wrong but that's my sense just based on the fact that there is a lot of asymptomatic transmission and that the R naught seems to be relatively high it is a bit mysterious that we're not seeing large outbreaks from the international introductions that have been around the place um and that's possibly to do with the over dispersion, that heterogeneity and the number of new infections per infected individual that I referred to. So there's still, you know, possibly a fighting chance that with enough reaction one could one could slow it. The position of the so so something to say perhaps is for something like influenza um in years where there's been a poor vaccine match. You can close the schools which reduces transmission but what happens is effectively the moment all the kids go back to school everyone who was going to get infected gets infected right these things they're just they're transmitting really at, at high rates so they're going to spread so there has been some work suggested that the quarantining of the cities uh slowed the spread by about 3 days that's not a i mean it you know who knows there's a lot of uncertainty in those estimates and um, that's not necessarily a negligible advantage right One of the, I think the chief medical officer in the United Kingdom came out yesterday saying that the hope was to delay the outbreak till summer because, you know, health systems are laboring under influenza Mm -hmm. at the moment. Winter is a bad time for a health system, right? So if you're going to be hit by a viral pathogen that causes respiratory ailments, then it would be, it's a real you can't neglect the advantages that we would be obtained just by simply delaying it a little bit.
2: Yeah, I also, I kind of want to go deeper into this point about the attempts to quell viral transmission. So we've talked about the fact that, you know, the rise in air travel, human behaviors, have drastically increased the ability of viruses to spread from one part of the world to, the, to another really quickly. The WHO actually tried to you know, contain fears about travel, but a lot of countries, including the United States, are imposing either recommendations or travel restrictions around China specifically. And as you were just saying, China has effectively quarantined multiple cities with literally tens of millions of people inside. So you mentioned that the quarantining of the cities may have done something to you know, push back the spread by a couple days, which may or may not be negligible. But what do you think about this idea of reducing air travel specifically? Um, Do you feel that that's something that would actively work to slow the spread of this virus? Can we actually do anything about this by changing human behavior?
1: Uh, So for this particular virus, I think The community is somewhat split, and I'm not sure that I know what I think specifically on this. I do think that the way, I mean, so much, the words we use are important and the ways we approach these things are so important. The thing about travel bans is, you know, if you create a context where people are going to be turning up at airports and lying, that's not great, right? You know, if I had come from China via Ethiopia, I would have said, no, I wasn't in China, you know, in order to get home. I'm not saying I would necessarily have done that, but I can imagine strong motivations to do that. So I think transparency is important, and um, the uh, the every time you try and intervene on human behaviour, you've got to really think about those pieces as well.
0: You, you mentioned uh, the UK is trying to d- delay it. Does that imply a certain degree of inevitability of, of an outbreak?
1: So again, I think the community is mixed, uh, but the perception there is that yes, that the, at the, the, the least it sounds as if they are fairly resigned to it happening.
0: Right, because you said you were quite surprised that this has not gone global yet, just based on the fact that it's R naught equals to two. And, and
1: so, sorry, not, not yet. I think I'm, you know, not um, I'm not totally <laughs> uncomfortable <laughs> yeah, with yeah. the rates. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, I would not be surprised if it went everywhere. But again, that might not be so. I think the evidence suggests that the case fatality rate is non negligible, right? So the degree to which this will impose a burden on our health systems and will be killing huge proportions of our populations could be quite high. But with asymptomatic carriage uh, if, if if those numbers are lower, if asymptomatic carriage is high, it could be that it's you know, it turns into another flu. This is something else people have talked about, right? Could be just another virus that we deal with every every winter.
2: Speaking of that, is there any evidence about I know that Influenza is a virus that every season it mutates again. There's a there's a new strain of influenza and that's why a vaccine that's used one year can't be used in the next year um, because the virus will have just changed so much. Is there any evidence that coronavirus is also as a virus population mutating or what that rate might be? Um,
1: so there's two pieces to that and the the uh My community immediately gets irritated when the press starts throwing the word mutation around, and this is because uh, it's often used interchangeably with adaptation, right? So the number of mutations is inevitable. There's always a rate at which mutation will be occurring in viruses and in ourselves, in fact, in all of um, DNA-based life, or RNA-based life, in fact. Um, But the degree to which uh, the um, virus might be escaping our immune system, so adapting to particular parts of so altering so the degree to which mutations that concealed it from our immune systems would be spreading within flu populations the degree to which we see that sort of pattern in coronaviruses i don't think is clear to me so one of the ways you can uh, this might get a little too technical but one of the ways you can get a window onto that is by looking at the phylogeny of these things so flu very famously has this is the kind of uh structure of relatedness among viruses and flu famously has a kind of ladder like structure where a new strain takes over every year um if you look at the coronavirus phylogeny my sense is that it doesn't look like that my sense is there have been four strains that have circulated in america on which we have data there's probably many more and they tend to have you know winter outbreaks and they just they just stick around so it's not like a new one is replacing it every so often
2: thank you that's really interesting to think about sort of those rates of change between um viral genomes as time goes on. Um, I was wondering also about the impact of the WHO and their messaging on the world response, the global response to this virus. So we talked about um, sort of mixed um, opinions and responses around the world, but the WHO has declared a state of emergency, and, um, I'm not actually sure of the technical terminology on that, but um, they did declare a state of emergency around this disease. um, And I was wondering what that signals to the global community, the global health community, um, in terms of trying to combat this, and what effects does that have?
1: So the term is a public health emergency of international concern. And I think there is a reasonable amount of debate as to what it means for the WHO to call one or not call one. So... Uh, and my memory of this might be a little bit fuzzy, but I think they called it really late for Ebola and the thought was that the that that well really late so they they called it at a time when calling it earlier might have been might have saved lives and might have been um much uh, had a very positive health impact for a Zika virus, they potentially called it early <laughs> because you know the concern was such so the the um I think there is Certainly, and given there have been so many in recent years, it's like, what does it actually mean to call a public health emergency of international concern? How do countries rally behind that? Um, I I think it's a debate, and I'm not actually sure what all the parameters are. So one of the wonderful things, one of the wonderful things, this has been a a terrible um, challenge for the public health community, but the small part of the community I'm part of, which is the mathematical modelers, have been extremely rapid about sharing data and sharing results and posting them for open access on Bioarchive or Medarchive, and I think that has been one of the really uh, sort of heartwarming triumphs of this of this um, of this process. And of course, a lot of nonsense has got out. I don't know if you guys read about the it came from snakes. Did not come from snakes.
0: <laughs> yeah, and speaking of this kind of uh, it came from snake uh, the quote unquote misinformation or fake news. When you read news these days from New York Times or Wall Street Journal or wherever, when, when especially the reporting on coronavirus, were there any notable headline or story that you immediately just thought, oh, that is quite inaccurate, where we're not representing the truth fully, or uh, there could be a more scientific, technical understanding about this matters? So.
1: I think use of the word mutation is often, you know, like it's like everything mutates. It's Of course it's mutating. Everything mutates. That doesn't mean it's worse for us. That's something that happens all the time.
0: Um, any other common misunderstanding that you think... Uh, people might have because i think the the idea for us is that we, we hope at least alex and i after we walk out of this interview or and some of our listeners uh, could feel like when they read about those things they're a little bit more uh better educated and i think i i'm already learning so much about this thing but any other common misunderstanding when people think about virus in general even for other viruses like ebola or, or things like that uh
1: Mm, interesting question. Um I mean I think that the the core for me often people think oh it's really transmissible that's terrifying. Not necessarily. You need to both understand to understand transmissibility and to understand case fatality rates or infection fatality rates. Um and without both those pieces you can't actually say the degree to which you should be concerned about a virus. We have viruses around and in us all the time. Um so the uh there's a particular ingredient that makes uh something that would motivate WHO to call a public health emergency of international concern.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that, that, that totally makes sense. Uh, and maybe just to tie the coronavirus back to your research for a little bit, how do you say it? mirroring or, or, or correlation or, or things that remind you of things in your research? Because you model the, the kind of the unpredictability or the complex factors uh, when it comes to viruses spreading and things like that. So uh, how do you map uh, th- 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 those together?
1: I think one of the really exciting things about working in um, infectious disease biology is that there are a common set of principles. We have a lot of core theory that allows us to sort of titrate what we think is going on. So for example, um, I work a lot on measles. Um, Madagascar just very tragically had a really large measles outbreak. Many of the principles were applying to understanding the coronavirus outbreak, so from the r naught, the early levels of spread, um, importance of human behavior, patterns of context, all these things also matter in that setting. So the infectious disease biology and understanding dynamics as a whole, that thread sort of cuts through uh, a lot of what I do.
0: Uh, So so it's about having a way more nuanced perspective in analyzing those different kind of factors at play.
1: I think in a way, one should also say that you're often working with um, patchy data, data that's coming in under different case definitions. Uh, You're working with a lot of uncertainty and you're building a sort of mathematical representation of that to try and figure out what the logic is, to try and pull together what we think is going on with a particular pathogen uh, in order to predict, in order to try and understand what health measures would be most effective.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that, that totally makes sense. Do, do you think we've uh, really made significant progress when it comes to understanding infectious diseases and obviously scientifically i, I think but but just this, this is this a huge resentment among the chinese public right now that that they feel the government has not improved since the sars outbreak that um the the, the common mistakes are still being made in terms of educating people or uh, whether the information is being delivered on time. Uh, But also, it doesn't seem to the people that scientifically we've made a lot of progress in terms of uh, responding to those. So so from your perspective, how do you see the progress?
1: Mm, I wonder, specifically since SARS, it'd be interesting to track out the specifics of what have happened. I think one of the things that public health uh, struggles with in, in messaging is the general struggle of preventive measures. I was at a meeting once where people were discussing whether the United States needed a national disease forecasting center, like we have a national weather forecasting center. And the consensus was no, in part because we're not terribly good at it. Um, And in part, because it'd be like, you know, if the national weather forecasting center says, oh, a cyclone's coming and you like, you know, a hurricane's coming, you batten down your windows The hurricane goes by, you say, thank you, National Weather Forecasting Centre. Whereas for if it was a national disease forecasting centre, you'd be like, everybody go out and get vaccinated. Everyone would go and get vaccinated and then nothing would happen. Right. So it's it. it, sometimes the successes of public health are rather invisible and become accepted. Right. And so I think that there is there is that as a general uh, issue. I don't know very much about the context in which, you know, again, I think it was reasonably hard to be certain that a coronavirus is going to be the next problem on the horizon. But, uh you know so I'm sure there's many nuanced arguments to have around that, and much much thought is being put into how we make public health systems resilient to these sorts of events. I think the one thing that everyone agrees on is capacity to meet surge is going to be important if these sorts of things happen
0: right awesome, awesome, yeah, uh, I guess another quick, quick question would be uh what do you think of our response so far? Are you more pessimistic? Are you optimistic? are you um, sort of feeling generally happy with how this... Not happy with how things have developed, but, but in the sense that you think at least the, 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 the measures are effective and we've done all we could, or do you feel the other way around?
1: So I'm not sure that I know exactly what one should have done. I don't think anyone knows yet exactly. I mean, I think hindsight will be 2020 at some stage, but yeah. it's very hard at this stage. I think the general advice uh, is to make sure that everyone knows that hand hygiene is important and get your flu shot, right? And that's the main uh, response that is likely to be effective at the individual level.
0: Awesome, awesome. And at the very end, uh, since the name of our show is called Policy Punchline, so I asked uh, every guest of our show, uh, what's the punchline here at the end? It could be anything, it could be about virology, it could be about the virus, it could be about your past research, uh, your experience in Madagascar, it could be about anything. What would be your punchline?
1: Hmm. Um, So something that Brian Grenfell and I are really passionate about is that to try and understand the landscape of global health, one thing that might be game-changing is if we had an understanding of the landscape of immunity, so who is protected against particular infections and who isn't. And the way we could get at that would be by uh, collecting blood in a strange vampiric fashion (laughs) and testing to see what pathogens people have been exposed to and to start developing an understanding of what that landscape of susceptibility is. So for example, measles arrives at Princeton right now, it's unlikely to go very far because everyone is immune to measles. That may or may not be true for particular enteroviruses. So this is viruses in the polio family. If we had the sort of surveillance that were designed not to just look for cases but to look for vulnerabilities to cases which we increasingly have the technological ability to do that would be very exciting and I think that would um, help steer policy in interesting ways.
0: Awesome that's a wonderful punchline to, to end on. S- thank you so much for, for educating me and our listeners it's been a wonderful conversation thank so much Professor Metcalf. Thank you. Awesome. And, th- and thanks for joining me today, Alex. How, how does it feel to the, the first podcast episode on Policy Punchline?
2: I'm very happy to have helped host.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Uh, and, and this concludes uh, this episode of uh, Policy Punchline. Uh, please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, rate and review us. Uh, visit us on policypunchline.com. Um, thank you so much for listening today.